Good morning again, Lakeville Christian Fellowship. It's a joy and a pleasure to be back here worshiping with you this morning. I'm sorry to hear about Pastor Dan testing positive for COVID. We'll be praying for him and his family. This morning, we're going to be in Psalm 42. So if you'll open up your text to Psalm 42. While you're opening up your text to Psalm 42, a couple of things. Um, I just want to say that I've, I've been a Christian for about 14 years, and I have not half as long as many of you here, but I, I have seen solid men and women uh, of the faith go through really hard times in cancer, death, betrayal, desertion. I've, I've seen dark seasons of life, awful situations. And I've asked the question, when calamities have come upon you and you're, you're cast into the state of spiritual depression, how do you endure? How do you endure? And this text this morning is an answer to that very question. So let's read it. My Bible, uh, my Bible titles this chapter, why are, thou, why are You Cast Down, O My Soul? Psalm 42, to the choir master, a maskal of the sons of Karah. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, awesome and, and holy God, we are utterly dependent on you, God. I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit. It's been another week since we've met together in, in corporate worship, and I, I thank you for giving us another opportunity to come before you in worship and praise. We still freely worship in this, you in this country, Lord. I pray that as, as the scriptures are read that your, and as your word is proclaimed, that you would lead us in truth. Teach us your will. I, I, I can't underestimate the seriousness of your presence here in worship.
The, the author of Hebrews, he tells us, Lord, that we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, Lord. Jesus, your son, is the true worship leader in the holy of holies, Lord. And we thank you that he goes before, he goes before us and delivers good and true worship on our behalf. Oh God, even our best worship is, is like filthy rags without Christ, Lord. We thank you for Christ, Christ standing in our presence, interceding for us. Our prayers, Lord, don't get out of this room without Christ. Please give us understanding that we may hear you and be faithful to you and obedient to you. I'm aware, Lord, of how weak and how feeble, Lord, and needy we are, but at the same time, I long for for Lakeville Christian Fellowship, Lord, to be edified by your divine truth. Please keep my lips from error. Give me clarity of thought. Free us from distractions of the world, of the devil, and even our own flesh. Cast our thoughts and worship to you, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Less than a hundred years ago, uh, the fame of a young preacher, Charles Spurgeon, was swelling in London. Crowds were coming into the church to hear his preaching. And on October 19, 1856... The 22-year-old Charles and his wife Susie prayed together before he departed to preach. And on this day, 12,000 people filled the building. 10,000 people were outside the building listening in. During the service, someone yelled, fire, fire, the place is falling. Thousands of people went into panic mode and they rushed for the exit. There 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 was no fire. There were people inciting inciting trouble. They just said those words. Seven people were trampled. 28 others were hospitalized that very day. Spurgeon was hit with this tragedy at 22 years old, and many blamed him for that tragedy as well. The effects of that tragedy plagued Charles for the rest of his life. His wife, Susie, referred to that event as the black shadow of sorrow. The tragic story That story that led to a lifetime of suffering may seem like an isolated story, something that happens to somebody else. But many of us, but many if not most of us, have had to suffer in some way or another. Dark seasons have come upon you where you've stood on uncertain ground. And maybe you're in one of those dark seasons now spiritually depressed, troubled in your thoughts, anxious about your future, you look at your life and maybe you say, how did I get here? Perhaps friends have turned on you. Perhaps family have turned on you. If what I'm saying is is foreign to you, as I mentioned, spiritual depression, either way, it's important to think about. So if the time does come, you will be prepared. It's very possible that in the near future, in our country, Christianity will be labeled hate speech. It's very possible. I don't know, but D.A. Carson, he says that one of the major causes of devastation and grief and confusion among Christians is that our expectations are false. We do not give the subject of evil and suffering the thought it deserves until we ourselves are confronted with tragedy. How do we handle our suffering? How do we suffer well? This psalm this morning speaks to that very question. It's, this Psalm 42 fits into the category of lament songs, lament psalms. If you don't know what lament means, it's okay. It means to, 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 be, to sorrow or to grieve. 
We lament the death of loved ones. We lament personal trouble. We lament, lament national disaster, the judgment of God. Scripture is filled with laments. We can think of the book of Lamentations. We can, Jesus in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, lamenting. The Psalms of laments are wonderful. And the reason why they're wonderful is because they give a voice to the pains and sorrows of God's people. It's really crucial. If you're anything like me and you struggle to articulate words as you come to God in prayer, as you lament, the Psalms can be really helpful. They can give us words to use. And we can pray these psalms. I can remember a couple of years ago, I was the head of a pastoral search committee at a prior church, and we had called a, a young man. We had, we had interviewed a young man, and it looked really good. We had him come in, and I got to know him and his family, and we took questions. He preached a sermon. He preached a Bible study. It looked great. And then he left. We flew him back, and um, after he got back, things turned really sour, and uh, not with him, but with the congregation. And Man, I'm not going to get into the details, but I was really broken by that event. And I, and I reached out to one of my Christian, uh, Christians uh, in the church there, one of the members, and this member said, you need to turn to Psalm 77. And so I went to Psalm 77. It was Psalm 77 that became the words that I used to get through that situation. So to look there later today. But point being is the Psalms give us wonderful, transformative words. They give us words, songs of praise, uh, worship of, of, of our God in the midst of lamenting. All right, so Psalm 42. Psalm 42 this morning is probably written by David. Uh, we can't be certain. It seems to have been written by David. One commentator notes that, that although David is not mentioned as the author, it, it, the psalm must be the offspring of his pen. It's very Davidic. It smells of the son of Jesse. It bears a mark of his style and experience in every letter. Can't, can't be certain. But if it was David, um, it could have been written during the time when David was persecuted. We think of 1 Samuel 19, 11 through 12, which reads, Saul sent messengers to David. Um, David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, if you don't escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. And David's wife had to let David down through a window in the back there. I mean, wives in this room, can you just imagine letting your husband out the window of the house in the back? Those, those, are, those are really bad times. I mean, I hope my wife would do that for me. But, I'm, you know, uh, dark seasons of life had come upon David, right? And in, in verse 1, we see those words, to the choir master, a maskal of the sons of Korah. Now, the sons of Korah were a group of people that led the ministry in singing. The psalm was used, or at least one of the uses of this psalm was in the sanctuary in public worship, and it was sung. So maybe instead of reading it today, I should have sang this psalm to you, but I figured I would save you from that experience. Verse 1 and 2, in your text this morning, as a deer pants for flowing streams... So pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. There's a panting here. You can think of a, a runner on the last leg of his race, just pushing to that finish line. The race is over, and he's hunched over, desperate for oxygen, desperate for something to drink, desperate to give his body a rest. The psalmist, he mentioned how thirsty he is for God. To say that you were thirsty points to a deeper desire than to say that you were hungry. It's not uncommon to live without food, times of famine, uh, times of fasting. 
But to live without water, it's a, greatest, it's a greater concern. You just won't, you won't survive as long. And we should note that we have a deep desire of the soul today. His soul is going through a time of unrest. He writes, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Notice what the psalmist is not panting for. Notice what David's not longing for if it's David. He's not longing for a bigger house. He's not longing for a paycheck, like that will solve his problems. He's actually not longing for anything connected with this world. Notice, notice he's not even longing for food here, but he longs for the one who can restore his heart to gladness. One, one, one first point here is I want you to know is that the suffering for this man means that he will not be content just to continue in his condition. Like, well, you know, I guess this is just the way it goes. This is my cross to bear, and this is the way it's going to be. Like Eeyore. No, that's not what's going on here. He's in a state of spiritual depression, yes, but he's not complacent about it. Rather, he knows the living God, and he longs for God. He has known the joy of fellowship with the Lord. He has known joy. He has known the days where his soul has been bursting with satisfaction. He has known the days when his, bowl, when, his, when his soul has been bursting with contentment, but not now. Now he is crushed in spirit. And But the psalmist, he acknowledges the state of his heart. He doesn't pretend. There's no pretending going on here by the psalmist. And likewise, we need to examine our hearts in times of despair. When we are feeling the weight of a burdened heart, those really low points in life, not knowing how to press on, not knowing how to cope with the current situation that we're in, we need to be honest about that. Those feelings of despair, they do not bypass the believer. It's important to think about. We can't place, we can't put the fake face on. And, and we as Christians tend to do that really well, and I've seen it. We, I say, you know, Sally, how are you doing today, Sally? And she says, oh, I'm doing well, I'm doing fine. And then I hear through the church grapevine that, no, she's not doing well. Her son has fallen off the deep end. She has no idea how to cope with this problem. And then I find out, I'm like, Sally, uh, you're not doing well. We're going to pray for you. We're going to get brothers and sisters next to you to help you. And, and, and that's important that we think about that. We need to do that. Second point, suffering should move us toward worshiping God. Big point there. Turn your eyes back to verse 2. Not making this up today. In the end of verse 2, he writes, When shall I come and appear before God? You can hear his heart just crying out before God. When? When shall I come and appear before God? When? John Gill wrote that he's referring to the tabernacle where he worships God. Remember, we're in the Old Testament. The, uh, the temple was, was the place that God had specifically set apart for worship. So we're thinking about worship here. When, God, I want to go and I want to worship you again. The psalmist mourns over the fact that he cannot be in the sanctuary. He's deprived. He's deprived of this outward means of worship, and this is having a devastating effect on him inwardly. He's feeling a void inwardly. There's a deep longing to worship God amongst his people in the tabernacle. And here's the key. It's not merely about meeting in the temple. No, no, no. It's not merely about the ordinances, but for fellowship with God himself. Why are we here? 
Why are we here? To check a box? No, no, no. Isaac Watts, he writes about this, and he says, let us examine what we came here to see. A shadow of religion? An outside Christian form? A graceful orator? The figures and shapes of devotion? Surely then, we might as well with as much wisdom and more innocence have gone to the wilderness to see a reed shaken by the wind. Can we say, as the Greek said in John 12, would we see Jesus? Or as Absalom said in 2 Samuel, it is to little purpose that I come to Jerusalem if I may not see the king's face. To little purpose we go to church or attend on ordinances if we seek not, if we see not God here. He says, in effect, the psalmist, Isaac Watt says, why are we here? We seek God here. We come to worship our almighty God. That's why we're here. Oh, that we would see our corporate worships that way, that we come to worship our almighty God. Worship is a cosmic experience in which Christ, in a mysterious way, in a mysterious God-ordains way, gathers us up with him in the heavenlies. It's my deep belief that Christian worship is the pinnacle of our existence. Christians old and new need to take a fresh look at worship. And I embrace this belief because Jesus Christ is the subject of our worship. Christ is, who, Christ is here with us now, not as a past event, but as a present reality. And he is the pulsating heartbeat of our being. The author, the author of Hebrews, he, he, he goes seven chapters, and then he says, now the main point of what we are saying is that we have a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle, set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Thanks be to God that we have this mediator. We have a true capital W, worship leader, here with us today on a Sunday morning. And he presents worship to God the Father as holy. Our psalmist, he, he longs for a time. He longs for a time that he can go back and worship, and, and go back to corporate worship of God. Now, wh- why, would, why would God not allow the psalmist to be unable to worship in the temple? We're, we're not given that information. And I'm not even going to speculate, but if, we were, if, he, if it were today, we would just blame it on COVID. We would say it's COVID's fault. That's why he's not there. But we don't know, but, but we, we do know that sometimes God teaches us worth by taking stuff away. You know, when, when, uh, when there's abundant manna in the, in the, in, in, that we have to eat, we are inclined to be unappreciative of the manna, and we long for meat. And then when we're hungry and the manna's been taken away, we long for the days of plentiful manna. What I see here in this text, though, is a man who longs for a time when he can enter into fellowship with God himself. There's a deep homesickness of the soul, a soul that needs to be satisfied, a soul that will have no satisfaction until in the presence of God. And, and the application is, is when we find ourselves in despair, spiritual depression, unjoyful that we would long for worship the way the psalmist does. That would drive us to worship. Much of the church today has trivialized 
true worship. They have replaced it with entertainment and cute stories. But true worship of our heart and soul is to be the thrust of the Christian life. In the beginning of the pandemic, we, we canceled our church. I don't know if you guys did that, but we canceled for a little while, and it was just sad. And I remember um, being able to come back. I remember being able to come back and worship God after the pandemic. And man, being amongst the brothers and sisters back that first Sunday, worshiping with God together in corporate worship, I just thought, man, this is amazing. This is great. And uh, if, you're, if you're going through times of despair, you may, you may think you want to avoid corporate worship. You may think you want to avoid corporate worship. You may want to drift off. Don't do that. You need to be here on a Sunday. You need to be grabbing hold of God's word, grab hold of the teaching, grab hold of the preaching. You need to be consistently gathering with God's people. People will help you walk again. Mathis, in, in, Mathis in his book, he wrote a book called Habits of Grace. and his, It's a good book. And he, when, he, when he wrote this book, he said that we need, we need to be positioning ourselves. He notes that the cure to spiritual depression, this deep-seated unhappiness, is to continually position yourself under the waves of God's grace. Now, we can't force God to pour out his, gra- his, his grace on us. We know that. But we can place ourselves in a spot where the waves can crash over us. So surfers, when they go surfing, they don't go to Walmart. Surfers, when they go surfing, they go to God's ocean. And so, so sit under sound teaching. That's the positioning where the word is preached. Don't buy into a low view of the church that the world is selling. Make it a priority to always be present in in, in worship. It saddens me when people drift off into the world of busyness. You know, I've got to work, you know, baseball, whatever it is. Some of the best worship services I've been to have been on vacation. when We've decided, hey, let's worship while we're on vacation. There's churches everywhere around the country and around the world. And and, uh, verse 3 in our text, go back to the text. Verse 3 in our text this morning. My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? My tears have been my food. I don't know anyone well-fed on tears. Uh, Kale soup, maybe, but not tears. I don't know if we have any Portuguese cooks in here, but if you haven't had kale soup, you're missing out. Um, His tears are real tears, and they're referring to the thing that has been taking hold of him, and have left him malnourished. In essence, this is what he's saying. If bread is what you eat to feel nourished, then bread I haven't eaten. I am spiritually starving. We know tears don't nourish. This struggle that's going on with this psalmist, it's all-consuming. My third point is this, to remember. Verse 3b, this is where it's coming from. While they, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? There is a question asked of the psalmist's enemies. How often has this world, your co-workers, family, friends maybe, said this, where is your God? Or if there was a God, why would he allow this? Why would he allow that? The world darkened in their understanding, seeking to pull you into their reasoning. Where is your God? The question is essentially asking, why doesn't your God help you? What is your God doing? As if suffering isn't bad enough. He's he's wounded further by the questioning of God's presence. It's a scornful question. It expresses its contempt even in its asking. The way that the psalmist deals with the misery is just amazing. You need to see this this morning because it comes right from the the text this morning. Verse 4, these things I remember. 
as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Notice there, there is an activity going on here. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. He's going to engage his mind. He's going to engage his mind to remember something. Yes, my soul feels shattered. Yes, the shattering is happening. But as it's shattered, I will remember. Yes, yes, yes. The doctors, the news of the doctor's office was real. You know, some of you think about, you know, going to the doctor's office, you think, wait, man, my whole family, like they have the healthy genes and I have the sick genes. Like what happened, you know? And then you think about going to the doctor's office. The news is real, but I will remember. The psalmist mentions how in the past, what is he remembering? He would go with the crowds, the temple during the festivals. One commentator notes that the words led them in procession includes a group of people making their way to the temple, the house of God for one of the great annual festivals. There is a sense of leading, I'm going to remember, leading the people of God with great joy and joyous shouts and songs of praise, the freeness to lead the people of God, to walk with the people of God to the temple. We can think of David. David did this in, in 2 Samuel 6.14. And David danced before the Lord with all of his might. And David was wearing a priestly garment. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark with the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn to shout and sing with the people of God. How often we tend to forget. We don't remember, but we forget the glorious days of the past. The psalmist doesn't do that here. One of his remedies is to remember God's dealings with his people. He's actively engaging his mind to remember the procession, the shouts of praise, the festival. Likewise, our suffering. We need to remember the things God has done. The man who was borderline divorced upon, upon God's call in his life, took his life and basically said, your wife who you hate is now your best friend. You remember that. Think about that. The man who, the, the baptism, think about the baptism, like the baptism being brought into the pool. I remember walking into the baptismal pool and it was in the pond and there was lightning striking everywhere and we were waiting for breaks in the lightning to be able to get in the pond and they kept saying, oh, at least we have two nurses here. And I was like, well, they're getting into the pond. It's not going to be much helpful. Not like any nurse can do anything anyways after you get struck by lightning or any doctor. <laughs> but we, we were baptized, but those are some amazing times as God just poured his grace out on us. I mean, you guys had some festival here where you were burning John Huss out there. You were doing a reenactment. That's cool stuff. I remember the day, those days, you know. I saw the picture over there on the booklet. Um, Matthew Henry's commentary, he writes that the way to forget our miseries, the way that we forget our miseries, is to remember the God of our mercies. There is a practice that goes on between our ears of remembering. We, we need to remember the beautiful words given to us this morning. These are not just words written on paper. These are blood-bought words given by God for your good. The believer reflects, and he considers the word of God, seeking first to understand it, and then seeking to apply it to his life. Let us remember, let us read, let us repeat over what has been read. In Psalm 1-2, it says, His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates 
day and night. You know, when you read your Bible, and after you read, you quickly open up your phone and you start scanning the news, right? You'd be surprised how fast your brain just files away what you just read in the Bible. And we need to stop, remember, think over that text. What's going on here? What's happening? Who are the characters? Who was involved? How does this impact me? Let the default mechanism, when you are alone, to be remembering that text that you read. Oh, how important it is to stop, to meditate, to ponder the text that you read this morning. The psalmist remembers it may be some time before he can go back now and to be with the people and leading them with the joyous shouts and the songs of praise. It may be some time, but in the meantime, he's going to remember. He's going to remember. My fifth point, repentance of sin. Now, it is possible, we don't know this from the text, it's possible that the psalmist is going through the struggle because of his sin. And we must say that there is not always a direct correlation between sin and suffering. We can think of Job. Job was blameless and upright, uh, but yet he suffered immensely. But we must also say that the opposite statement is true. Um, we must be careful not to say that there is no correlation between sin and suffering. Suffering can be attached, especially if you think about unbelievers. And if you don't know Christ here, we can think suffering can be attached to the fact that you are in sin. And you need a Savior who can take payment for your sin. Maybe you're a season of suffering. You don't know Christ and you, and you ask why. I can tell you after listening to many testimonies, mine included, that God is often trying to get your attention, pointing you to his Son. And he's, he's knocking on the door. And, and the Son who was made to suffer and die for you. Now, He's asking you to, cut, to cast your life on him. Oh, that this would be the day that you would say, all day my tears have not fed me. They have not been food. And I realize they don't provide. Only Christ can. To the Christian, we need to be sure of this as well. We need to be very clear. We need to be sure that we have not so domesticated the message of the cross, both in your life and in your witness to the world so as not to suffer. To the Christian, let me say it this way. Has your attachment to Christ and your pursuit of holiness been so watered down that you've just spent your life insulating yourself from the sharp edges of the cross? Think about your witness to the outside world. I want your life to so shine that the world would see your good works and they would say, there's something otherworldly about this person. That's what I want. This person is not from this world. That, that Christ will be so magnified in your life that it just spills over into everything that you do and everything that you are. Christ says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And in Matthew 5, 16, he says, in the same way, let your light shine before others. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he said these amazing words. He said, he said when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Back in our text, my, my, sixth, point, my sixth point and my favorite point is, is this one. Preach the gospel to yourself and do it often. Look at verse 5. This is where I'm getting this from. Uh, I've been really eager to get to this one. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, 
my salvation. Now that statement, that verse is repeated in verse 11 as well. Uh, We're not going to look at verse 11. I want you to hear it a couple of different ways. The NIV reads it this way. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? And the King James uh, uses the word disquieted. The King James, it says, why are thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted in me? Here in the beginning of verse 5, the psalmist is asking what seems to be an odd question at first glance. He's asking his soul this question, why are you cast down? I thought that was odd. It is, it is as though there's more than one person speaking here. That's what it looks like. But, but it seems as though there's one person questioning another. But that's not the case. One commentator says that his faith reasons with his fears. That's what's going on. His hope argues with his sorrows. That's what's going on. It's possible that you may think it's weird to preach the gospel to yourself, but you must never forget to do this. Remember what I said last week. Jesus wasn't lost. You were. He found you. Reason earnestly with yourself with the intention of persuading yourself to really grasp the implication of what that means in your life. Here in the Psalms, the writer asks his soul this question. See it in your text. Why are you downcast? It's not an arbitrary question that he asked. He has an intention. There's a sense of reasoning. There's a sense of persuading going on here. Soul, why? I'm reasoning with you. I'm reasoning with you. Why? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation. And if you can state these words that God is your salvation, then you have real hope. You have a promise that Jesus will never leave you. You have a promise that Jesus will never forsake you. You can't be afraid to do this with yourself. When you wake up in the morning and your thoughts press you under the waves before you get out of bed, this world, your sin nature, the, 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 the past, your, the future. I mean, has anyone bought gas recently? Reason with yourself. Preach to yourself. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he, he wrote some amazing words. He said, have you realized that most of the unhappiness in your life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts. It seems weird, but he said, take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning, you have not originated those thoughts, but they're talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man's treatment in Psalm 42 was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. No. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? His, his soul has been depressing him, crushing him. And he stands up and he says, Self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. Your faith really does need to wrestle and reason with your sorrows. Why are you cast down? He takes himself to task here. He's expressing strong disapproval. He's trying to undo a state that he's in. He's trying to reason with himself, to urge and persuade himself in a better course of of, of action, a godly course. He handles this by saying, listen now, I will speak to you. Soul, what business do you have 
to be worried? What business do you have to be disquieted? What business do you have to be unsettled? I will speak to you. Likewise, those who have faith in Christ can say, what business do you have to be disquieted, soul? You get up in the morning and the flesh starts going to war on your thoughts. That coworker who sought to hurt you, he's on the job set again this morning. That doctor's office, you got to go this morning. You know how bad your health's been. Instead, start talking to yourself. Take every thought and make it captive to Christ. Here is a man reasoning with self. Self, I need to talk to you. And this is what we will do. Verse 5b. Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Hope in God. That's what he tells himself to do. He takes his thoughts captive, takes them to task, and he just points them to God. He reminds himself of the fountain of hope. He knows where he can get the remedy. He knows of a relationship with God that is joyful. He knows of a relationship with God that is whole. Don't you remember? Jesus has set you free from death and has granted you life. Galatians 1.20, it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith. In the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Those are some amazing words right there. In verse 6 and 7, here we have a, in verses 6 and 7 of our text this morning, we have a reference to the afflictions that he's experiencing. Matthew Henry, he says, One affliction comes upon the neck of another. It could be one frightful thought that summoned another frightful thought. There is a real sense of overwhelming and overpowering battering of affliction. He says in your text, all your breakers and your waves have gone, excuse me, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. This psalmist was overpowered and, and he was overwhelmed by his grief. And it's not uncommon. Charles Spurgeon, he wrote about his state of, state of depression. And he said, Charles said, Knowing by most painful experience what deep depression of spirit means, being visited by frequent seasons of depression. He says, in effect, I have known deep depression, depressions of spirit. I I have been visited by these seasons frequently. But notice in verse 7 of our text this morning. Verse 7, the psalmist assigns ownership. He assigns ownership to the waterfalls, and he assigns ownership to the waves. Notice, they aren't any waterfalls. Like, he doesn't use a vague, meaningless term like Mother Nature. No, 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 no. These are your waterfalls. These are your breakers and your waves. Even in these grief-stricken verses, he points to his God, and he points to who these forces answer to. In 1 Chronicles 29, verses 11 through 12, David wrote, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. 
Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you. You rule over all. In your hand are power and might. And in your hand is to make great and to give strength to all. We need to understand that God is sovereignly in control of every square inch, of every square millimeter, of every atomic particle of this creation. He's in control. Verse 8, by, by day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. This is no small statement. The Lord commands the creator of the universe, the true king, the God who is sovereignly in control now, the psalmist points to him, and he says, the Lord commands his steadfast love. I, I could spend a, a week trying to unpack what the Lord's steadfast love is, and I would still come up short. His steadfast love is one of his attributes. It's not like he expresses love. No, he is love. Moses asked this question. Moses, in Exodus 34, he said, show me your glory. And in fact, show me who you are, God. It's a good question. In verses 6, it reads, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This morning, you need to know that God's love is steadfast. It's abounding, and we don't uphold it. He upholds it. Steadfast can be defined as unwavering or firmly fixed in place, not subject to change, and it's directed to those who are in covenant relationship with him. We can think of how fickle our love is. Our love changes by what we eat for lunch. Our love is not steady. It, it, it wavers. It's inconsistent. God's not like that. If you are in Christ, you are, you are loved by the only steadfast, loving creator, God. The psalmist knows this, and he points to this. Back and back in our text, in verses 9, I say to my God, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning? Because of the oppression of my enemy? Now, rock is the name used to refer to God. The psalmist asks why his rock, why God has forgotten him. Well, we know God can't forget his, his, his own children. However, his children, after being under affliction for some time, can preemptively conclude that God has forgotten them. But this is not possible. A good example of this, I think, is, is in Exodus. If you go to Exodus and you see the enslavement of his people, think back. If you were an Israelite enslaved in Egypt, end of Genesis, Joseph had a really good relationship with Pharaoh. It was a good time to be an Israelite in Egypt. Israelites were treated fairly. But then there's a terrible thing that happens, and we see it in the very beginning of Exodus, in Exodus 1.8. Now there arose a king in Egypt who knew not Joseph. That turned out to be really bad for the Israelites. For years, they were subjected to slavery from the Egyptians, living lives of slavery, living lives of oppression. And yet, and yet, you think, Is God, has God forgotten about us? 
And, and we hear those magnificent words to Moses by God. Exodus 3, chapter, Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 through 8. It is some amazing words. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Just stop for a moment and listen to God. I have surely seen the affliction of my people. And it gets better. I have heard their cry. And it gets better. I know their sufferings. And it gets better. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And it gets better. I will bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Israel coming out of Egypt must have seemed like an impossible reality to those living in bondage. And yet, this wonderfully foreshadows the gospel message, doesn't it? The one and only God that David here longs for made us in his image to know him. But, problem, we sinned and we cut ourselves off from him. It, but it gets better. In his great love, God became a man in Jesus, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, thus fulfilling the law himself taking on the punishment for the sins of all those who would turn and trust and faith in him. But it gets better. He arose from the dead, showing that God's accepted sacrifice, God accepted the sacrifice, and his wrath had been paid for. It gets better. He atoned. He accepted, he ascended and presented his completed work before his heavenly Father. He now sends out his spirit, he calls us to this message to repent of our sins and to trust in Christ alone for our forgiveness. And if we trust in Christ for our, uh, if we repent of our sins and trust in Christ, we are born again into this new life, an eternal life with God. Now that's a God that is worthy of all honor, all praise, and all worship. My last point in suffering is to give God the glory. It's a quick point, but in Isaiah 48, 10, the, uh, the writer says, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory, I will not give it to another. This universe is about is God's, and it's about, it's about God, and it's about his glory. So yes, I am suffering, and yes, I am sorrowful, and yes, I will give you the glory. Let us say with Paul, let us learn to say with Paul in 2 Corinthians 6.10, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Poor, yet making many rich having nothing, yet possessing everything. Our psalmist this morning, he knows sorrow. He knows sorrow, but he also knows the fountain of joy. And he fights for this fountain. Let God use your suffering to further his kingdom. And to God be the glory. Let God use your suffering in the extension of the gospel and give God the glory in your suffering. Let's pray. Lord, we, we bow before the majesty of our gracious God. We praise and worship your holy name. We acknowledge, Lord, 
our faults, and we pray that we will be made to feel them more and more and, and to help us fully submit to the times of reproving and correcting. Thank you, Lord, for this text this morning. We know that we do have seasons of discouragement. We have times full of doubt and heartaches and disappointments. Forgive us for the times that we have forgotten your promises to us. During those times, Lord, please fasten us to the rock of your eternal election. You know us by name. You lead us in these times. You are the ground of our salvation. Heal us. Heal of, us any, of, of, of any wounds received in the great conflict. If we have gathered defilement, if our faith has suffered damage, Lord, if our hope is less than bright, if our love is not fervent, cause us to rest on your power and your faithfulness, to know that you have called us and you are worth living for. Let us follow the path. Let us follow the path which you show us and always be governed by your Holy Spirit. Fix our eyes on your kingdom and let us continually realize and recognize that we are just pilgrims passing through your kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.